exploring this series on Galatians. If you've missed some of it, I would encourage you to go to our website, eastpetemc.org, click the Messages tab, and you can follow along with the series so far. This morning, we are going to continue our series from Galatians. We've been in a series in which we've titled The Essentials of Faith, this several-week journey through Uh, Galatians on Sunday mornings is all about discovering the fundamental essentials from Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. I've deeply enjoyed this series so far. I hope you guys have been as well. As a reminder of what's happening so far in this series, the things that we've looked at is there's a lot happening not only in our world, but in the world that is happening here to these churches in Galatia. Much is happening in the life that of these churches that were spread throughout this town. N.T. Wright pushes out that in these letters, in Galatians, Paul is saying, according to Paul, Jesus' death and resurrection means that this, that this God is now building a new family, a single family, a family with no divisions, no separate races, no one table for the Jews and another for Gentiles, nonsense. See, in seasons of transitions, we so often find ourselves in camps of comfort or in the tribes that we form so easily, and that's exactly what is happening in this church in Galatia as they see their culture changing. These Galatian churches, communities, are made up of followers of Jesus, both from Jewish backgrounds and from off the streets. So we have insiders, we have outsiders, we have people that have grew up as Jews, we have people that have grown up in pagan belief systems. In this letter, Paul hopes to address the fundamental and essentials of our faith, including grace, freedom, character, and commitment. As he writes to the churches in this region, he's hoping to remind them and to realign them to it. However, he also hopes to remind them and refocus them on what is the gospel. Paul has become increasingly aware that someone needs to address the growing tension of the law that the Jewish insiders were holding over the Gentile outsiders. In addition to this, culture is changing. This area is being ruled by an emperor who struggles with his disability, but he's also fighting the spreading of religion. He's stopped people from evangelizing, even in places that were considered safe zones. And the church is slowly becoming infatuated with the governmental systems of power in play. That is the story of what we see happening in Galatians. Paul saw what was happening and realized the very gospel was under attack. John Knox Press puts it this way, under the influence of Judaizers, however, his converts were now turning to a different gospel, not that there was another gospel. We read Galatians to check our own cheese or to check ourselves at the door, to hold our own community and our own gospel up to the light and say, all right, Lord, is what we have really the real thing or is it just what we're comfortable with? In many ways, what we're going to look at this morning is a big wake-up call from Paul. In fact, all of Galatians 3 is a big wake-up call. And the words wake-up call probably resonates with us in different stories when we hear it. If you're not aware, the Chicago Cubs are in the World Series. Chicago has a chance of maybe winning the World Series for the first time since 1908. It's a long time. But when they were in the playoffs trying to get to the World Series, it wasn't looking so good. And the Chicago Tribune said, now is the time for our bats to have a wake-up call. And once again, now that the 
oppressiveness of the Cleveland Indians lineup is seemingly preventing the Cubs from winning the World Series. The announcers last night were talking that the bats need a wake-up call again as the Cubbies are losing 3-1 to one in the series. Another thing that comes to mind may be waking up or morning time. Early rising, wake up is impossible for me without coffee. So thank you for the big cup. However, growing up, I strongly liked the words wake up, not because I knew I had to get up early to do chores or not because I knew I had to wake up and the air would be cold, but because I just wasn't ready to get out of bed yet. If my father had planned a fishing trip, it meant getting out of the bed even earlier. And he used creative ways to try to get us up at 3 or 4 in the morning sometimes. Or sometimes he would run into our room screaming and say, get dressed like it's a four-alarm blaze. And we had to get dressed like the house was on fire. There were times that he would blare his stereo to get us moving. And yet I remember a few times that he even pushed the test button on the smoke detector to send the whole house into panic. Like the Cubs, see why I hate waking up? Like the Cubs, Paul realizes that his team is falling dormant under the weight of the culture around them. Like parents waking their children, Paul comes into the room hitting hard to stop them from allowing their eyes to drift off. Paul calls to his team to put on the clothes of Christ in Galatians 3 with great urgency. So this morning, we start that series with a look of wake up and get dressed from Galatians 3, 1 through 10. If you have your Bible with me, I encourage you to follow along. It will also be on the screen in front of you. As you're finding Galatians, I should say 3, 23 through 29. As you're finding that, what we see happening in Galatians 3 up to this point, we're only going to read the last few verses of chapter 3. What we see happening so far is Paul really does come in hitting hard. He really does try to wake them up. In fact, in the first verse 3, 1, the first thing he accuses them of is being bewitched, the NIV says, or I believe the King James and some other ones say, are you under a curse? We see Paul accuse the church communities of being under a curse or under a spell. He cannot understand how they have lost focus and how they have divided into their tribes so easily. There's no other reason, he says. You must be under a curse. Paul begins to play apologetics then in Galatians 3. He begins to explain the reasoning of the law and the rituals that have defined them up to this point. He describes that they are not a permanent thing which God intended. He goes on to explain that they are made to birth the most important thing, the moment of Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom. Much of what we see in Galatians 3 is actually piggybacked on Galatians 2. And it's a very continued thought of what Pastor Bob pushed out last week. But as the old saying goes, Paul knew that there were different strokes for different folks. And so what he did is explain the same thing in a different way. Ironically, when the Volkswagen in 1974 redesigned themselves, their slogan was different Volks for different folks. And Paul realizes that each one of us needs something. Sometimes we need new cheese to get it. Sometimes we need old cheese to get it. And so Paul does exactly this. He explains Galatians 2, what we looked at last week, again, in a completely different way to try to make sure that they get it. We're going to look at Galatians 3, just the end of it, to see how Paul brings them all together. Before, again, this is Galatians 3, 23 through 29. 
Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up unto the faith that was to come would be revealed, so that the law was our guardian unto Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There's a lot that we could say about these just few verses right here. And this morning, we're going to take six takeaways from it. If you have a bulletin, I encourage you to follow along. There's some places to fill in some underscores and just to take some notes and some takeaways from this passage. I would, include, I would uh, encourage you that as we look at this series in Galatians to make that chapter your devotional for this week. So for this week, continue to look at Galatians 3. And, last, and, and Galatians 2 would have been the focus for last week. I think it's, a, it's important to look at these things and to continue to push them out throughout the week and not expect to get everything that Paul is writing to the churches just here on a Sunday morning. First thing we see Paul do is the passage is a call from Paul to the Galatian churches to wake up and get dressed. As I pointed out earlier, in the beginning of Galatians 3, to get their attention, we find Paul coming under, accusing them of being under a curse or bewitching. He can explain no other reason for them to be so feeble and weak-minded. He wants them to realize how foolish they are being, how quickly they have accepted influences from others and abandoned the gospel that he put in their midst. He also looks to give them what we might call a Holy Spirit wake-up call. He reminds them that both Gentile and Jew equally received their faith from the Holy Spirit and not by any work of the law. He's taking them to the root of their first faith moment to show that, you know what, guys? You're not camps. You have this in common. The Holy Spirit gave you a faith moment. And it's the same for you as it is for you as it is for you as it is for me. We might say that he's telling them to wake up and get dressed. You're not hitting the pitches anymore. You're drifting back to sleep rather than going out for fishing for men. Charles Erdman, theologian and Presbyterian Bible scholar, suggests that Paul is aware that we might call cultural and rich, what we might call religious and cultural ritualism has taken root in their community. In his wake-up call, Paul is coming against this. Charles Erdman puts it this way, ritualism is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Ritualism, as explained by the Oxford Dictionary, is the regular observance or practice of a ritual, especially when excessive or without regard to its function. In other words, you're just doing things for the sake of doing them. A ritual, they explain, is a religious or solemn ceremony consisting of a series of actions performed or prescribed in order. In other words, it's something you do over and over again. It's a habit. There are good rituals and bad rituals in church and in our religious context. Meeting every Sunday is a ritual. It is a good ritual. It's a good habit. However, if we hold it over others as a sign of faith, it becomes a bad ritual. 
It becomes a legalistic ritual. It shows that we are spiritually mature to say that if you're not here, you're not a Christian. Now, it may show if somebody's not here on a Sunday morning a lack of commitment or an honor to the community, but it does not and cannot be used to explain faith. And that is what Paul is explaining. We also see that Paul reminds them that they are equally children of God through faith. In this community that has succumbed to cultural influence, questioned Paul's authority, and now divided themselves, Paul reminds them that the most important thing is to come back together. The Beatles used to sing, come together. And so Paul sings a reminder that they are all equally children of God. They've all come to understand what that means through the same moment of faith. There are two different Greek words used here to explain their identity. Charles Erdman explains it like this. It is true that all Christians are children of God as well as being sons of God. But the two Greek words embody very different conceptions. Children of God denotes that those who have been born again and share the nature of God. The word sons, which Paul here employs, denotes a legal status. Paul says that regardless how you came to be a child of God, you are all children of God. Regardless, if you are adopted into a legal status, you were, uh, what do we call it here, and carried in, or unless you have been adopted in and share the nature of God from the outside, Paul says, you are all children of God. In fact, some of these dividing terms, we probably haven't come too far in, right? We still look for people that have Lancaster County last names. We still talk about ourselves as carried in and not carried in. These concepts are very similar to what we see happening in between the Jews and the Gentiles in this early church. People are dividing themselves on ritual, legalistic influences. They're making their identity something different than their moments of faith. Matthew Henry explains it like this. Christians enjoy great privileges under the gospel. This is what he says Paul is trying to teach him. Christians enjoy great privileges under the gospel. They are no longer accounted as servants, but sons. And now they are kept at such a distance. They are no longer kept away from God. They are allowed to be in the presence of God. But there's these people, these insiders, that are trying to stop that. Using an example that they know well... He, Paul, tells them that they no longer need a babysitter to mold them. Now that word babysitter comes from this. The NIV says that the law held us in great custody under the law that acted as a guardian. The King James says that we were kept under the law that acted as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The New Living Translation says that we are under the guard of the law's protective custody. It feels imprisoned, doesn't it? That acted as our guardian to protect us. Theologian N.T. Wright suggests a more accurate translation into our culture understanding would be babysitter. David Jeremiah uses the word tutor in his translation, knowing that that was common in the culture. In fact, we see that Paul was probably talking about a cultural understanding that they had, this household servant that most families would have had. Archibald Hunter from the Layman's Bible Commentary explains it. In fact, 
says Paul, you might compare the law to a pedagogue, or that is the household servant who took care of children when young, conducted them to and from school, and generally disciplined them till they came of age. In our culture, I think we call those parents, but apparently there were household servants for such things at this time. And so Paul is explaining it through these eyes. He also uses a word prior to this, the word toga in the original text. And if you think of a toga like a white cape that you wear off, he's telling them that there, there's a coming of age sense to it. When you, before you came to faith, and the word toga there, he's saying that uh, there was a time in this culture where people would have removed uh, their child toga and they would have put on an adult toga. And so he's speaking to them showing them that they are time to grow up. It's time to wake up and put on the maturity to, to own the faith and to lose the legalism. Paul, he also teaches them that their baptism becomes their most defining moment to their identity. This is actually Paul's big crescendo moment. This is his great buildup. This is his great wake-up call. We see this in Galatians 3, 26 through 27. As Paul writes, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This is what we might call his call to mission statement. That all who have been baptized are equally children of God through their faith. There is no triads. There is no inside and outside. In their baptism, they, everyone, we have clothed ourselves with Christ. Paul's call is to wake up and to get dressed, to put on your adult toga, to be an adult, to grow up, to not lose focus so much, to not get so divided, not to feel and act like you're under a bewitching or a curse. It is time to wake up, get dressed, move on, and keep your eyes open. What Paul is also reminding them in this passage is that in baptism, we are, in essence, dressing ourselves. The point comes from Galatians 3.28, where Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. As of recent, this verse has been used in many ways to explain many things. It has been used to defend everything from immigration rights to uh, certain pastoral roles for women and men, as well as an idea of universal salvation. None of which I think is what Paul is saying here. I want to hold this verse with great contention, with great tension to the contextual foundation that surrounds it. Paul is only telling them to quit the tribes that they are letting define them and who they are. He's saying, guys, you're not these things. You are only baptized children of God who share a same common thing. You are all children of God who did nothing to earn it. You are all children of God who share the same Holy Spirit-driven, come-to-God moment. So why have you allowed rituals and outside influences create, carried in, an outsider? You are nothing but equal children of God. 
our takeaways, it's essential that we do not see ourselves in tribes. Carried in and out, or as some insiders and others as outsiders. At our core, we need to be a community that sees each other as equal children of God. And if you can't do that, then you're missing out, Paul says, on what Jesus is demanding of you. At our core, we need to be a community that sees each other as equal children of God. That we speak, embody, and demonstrate grace and honor and love to each other. Ironically, that verse that we use to make lots of arguments, if anything, would probably actually be more applicable to the way we even divide ourselves in denominations and in churches and view other people as different. I remember going to a Baptist church one time, and the whole time they made fun of the Methodist church down the street. Some years later, I went to a Methodist church, and all they did was make fun of the Baptist church down the street. That is not always how both those churches work. It was just my experience. But far too often, we allow tribes to uh, define us rather than honoring each other and seeing each other in the children of God. One of the roles that I have in the neighborhood is I oversee the East Pete Ministerium. I facilitate our time together once a month. There are people who do not like to come to the table with other pastors because they cannot see each other as equal children of God. We are a diverse group. We have male and female. We have people of color. We have people of old and young. We have people that are Methodist and Anglican, uh, Lutheran and, and other things. We have a very diverse group. But this idea is what we are doing. We are coming to look together for collaboration, recognizing each other as the children of God. Are we doing that in our own lives and with each other? We do not have to jump through loopholes and rituals to meet God. That's what Paul is hammering home here. We should not be legalistically then requiring this of others as well. Ritualism is immaturity. The passage is a call for us to wake up and dress ourselves with all of the excellencies of Christ. And the point Paul is making is that you cannot see any Buddy, any different than an equal child of God. Not in, not out, not slave, not male, not female. All you can see is that they are equal children of God. Together we sit here as East Petersburg Mennonite Church, a community that is learning to live and love like Jesus. And we are doing that not as one camp or if several camps working together, but a camp that needs to get on the same page. And to do that, we must see each other as equal children of God. In essence, Paul might as well just refer them to the reality that in Genesis, we see that each person is made in the image of God. Omega Deo, right? We are all made in the image of God. And that is the lens in which we are to see everyone. This passage, I think, doesn't apply so much communally as it does individually. And as the worship team comes back up, I encourage you, reflect on what it is that you have legalistically wished people could do. What loopholes do you wish they could jump through to be an in-person? Or what, what dividing uh, tribe do you belong to? What is it that you need to surrender of? Smell your own cheese, to use the example from Angela. 